Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God as we continue through the Gospel of John. This is chapter 3, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Thus the reading of God's word, let us ask his blessing. Our God and Father, the mysteries of the love of God, of your love for the Son and your purposes in giving him all things are before us in this text. And your delight in him spills out into the mission of our salvation. Father, then open our eyes to these things as we consider this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Years ago, John Piper published a book, The Pleasures of God, and in in the chapter entitled, The Pleasure of God in His Son, note the title of the chapter, The Pleasure of God in His Son, he wrote this sentence, imagine being able to enjoy what is most enjoyable with unbounded energy and passion forever. I want you to keep that sentence in mind, that thought in mind as we go through this text this morning and consider what's going on. Imagine... Imagine being able, being able to enjoy what, was, what is most enjoyable and to be able to do so with unbounded energy and passion forever. Are you in? Yeah, I like that. I want that. <laughs> okay. Well, so what have we seen so far? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That's 316. But we also see in this passage that God also so loved his son that he gave him all things. So God so loved the world that he gave the world his son. And God so loves the son that he gave his son the world. (laughs) How does that all work out? Well, in this passage, we find out that John the Baptist joins in the father's delight over the son as he watches Jesus's mission flourish. 329 here again. It says um, at the end there, therefore his joy of mind is fulfilled. That's what John says with regard, with regard to what he sees the father doing for the son. You see, in, in John the Baptist's mind, in his mind, 
He, John, is the, is the friend of the bridegroom, rejoicing to see the perfected bride presented to her groom. And he cries out, this joy of mine is fulfilled. This love the Father has for the world, for the Son, and his delight in his Son is all something that we are brought into as we come to abide in Christ and he in us. And so again, that that sentence, uh, imagine being able to enjoy what is most enjoyable with unbounded energy and passion forever is something that is going on right at this moment and for all eternity past and eternity future. The Father's eternal, unbounded, passionate love and delight over His Son already exists. The, The whole world, the whole world is overshadowed with the unbounded delight that the father has over his son. That is, that's how the world is created. That's how the world is sustained. That's how the world is saved. That's, that's what's going to come out in this passage. But what's, what's really more important than that in this passage is the fact that and, and in all of the Gospel of John, this will be brought out over and over again, this love that the father has for the son and this love that the son has for the father, you have been invited to participate in. You have been invited to be enveloped in. You have been invited to enjoy with. John 17, 26, which we won't get to for quite some time. <laughs> but here it is. And I have declared to them, this is Jesus speaking at the end of his pastoral prayer in John 17. And I have declared to them your name, Father, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. And so it is, it's, it is offered to you then, imagine being able to enjoy what is most enjoyable with unbounded energy and passion forever. Consider the text with me. For the final time in this gospel, John the Baptist testifies concerning Jesus. We have seen this testifying of John the Baptist several times, mostly throughout uh, chapter 1, verse 7, verse 15, 19, 29, 36. All use this word martyr. All use this Greek word martyr, which we translate testify or bear witness to. And and I want to set that up with that idea of martyrdom for just a moment as well. Because when you read the stories of Christian martyrs, what you so often will hear them say is they will talk about in the midst of death right before them, they're going to lose everything. They will talk about their delight. They will talk about their delight in the Lord. They'll talk about their anticipation to be in his presence forever. To find, they oftentimes are talking about um, both, they'll, they'll cry out that God would forgive those who are persecuting them. And they will cry out with regard to themselves, God, purge me of all my sins as I come into your presence. Now, they're looking forward to everything being done that is so hard here on this earth and to being in the presence of the Lord and being able to have testified to his faithfulness, not theirs, but to his faithfulness throughout their life. Well, this is what John the Baptist is doing. When the word testify is being used, that's what it's talking about. But um, as is mentioned in this passage, these events take place in the Gospel of John before he was put in prison. And John was put in prison to be another testifier, a martyr. He would lose his life and his, he would lose, lose his head and his life for the sake of the Gospel, for standing fast to testifying to who Jesus was. And we're going to see that his light was made full, that his joy was made full in doing so. 
But this is the final time that we'll hear of John's testimony in, in this gospel. We're told that sometime after the event with Nicodemus in chapter 3, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where Jesus remained or abided with them. He was with his disciples for some period of time. We're not told how long he is there, but, but the point is made that they didn't just stop there. He's there, and they begin gr- gathering a growing and growing fo- following. Some uh, f- uh, are coming, and many begin to come from John, um, from, uh, that had been followers of John. So Jesus was baptizing there. His disciples actually were doing the baptizing. We'll see that in chapter 4. While John the Baptist was baptizing in another area, many of John's disciples were leaving him and going to Jesus, which led to this dispute. These are verses 22 through 26. Remember the Pharisees, the priests, and the Levites, these rulers and leaders, both of the religious and civil government of of Israel, had been sent and were already suspicious of John and his baptizing. We saw that in chapter 1. But now with Jesus baptizing, it appeared more and more that Judaism and the purification rites were somehow being threatened. And a dispute arose amongst the Jews, or a particular Jew, depending on the translation you have. The Jews or a particular Jew, probably a ruler, with regard, had some kind of authority and oversight over the purification laws. And, and there's a dispute now about what's going on and with the fact that now Jesus is also baptizing. But remember here, how is it that Judaism, how does it come out of this text that Judaism has been threatened? There's a, there's a conflict, there's some kind of dispute about the purification laws. Well, what have we seen so far? Well, first, in chapter 2, in the verse, first 12 verses, we saw the water purification rites being surpassed by the new wine of Jesus. Second, we saw that the temple was to be surpassed by the Messiah, who would, who would be the new mediator at the end of chapter 2. Build, uh, destroy this temple, the place where all the purification rites would go on. Destroy this temple, Jesus said, and I will raise it up in three days. Third, the new birth by the Spirit would set aside all the rites to salvation established by the Pharisees. Nicodemus, a faithful uh, Pharisee, leader of the Pharisees in some ways, comes to Jesus by night and says, Rabbi, we know you're a good teacher. And Jesus says, you don't know a thing. And he sets aside all, the, all, of, the, all of what the Pharisees think that you need to do in order to get into heaven. And now Jesus' baptism was also surpassing John's. All these things that were being said about Jesus, were, and now this baptism that's now being pointed towards Jesus and, and being done by his disciples is revealing that Jesus is taking a stand against the Ju- Judaism, against, against the purification um, laws and, and, and things that are going on. Something is about to change. Well, um, so... They, they say, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him, in verse 26. Now, this is the, um, the uh, disciples of John. They're saying, all are, coming, all are coming to him. John answers that this was exactly the mission that he, was ascent, that he was sent to accomplish. John has no trouble with it. Look again with me at verse 27. John answered and said, a man cannot re- can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I have said, I'm not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. 
John over and over has made this uh, clear, um, and John the Evangelist has recorded this about the Baptist over and over again. Uh, many historians believe that this is because as John's ministering in Ephesus, there are still followers of John the Baptist who think that, that there's, they've set aside the, the Ju- uh, practices of Judaism but because they're in Ephesus. They're not going to Jerusalem anymore, but they aren't following the Christ. They're following the Baptist. His, his ministry had been had been overwhelming and good and great repentance had come, pl- had come in place, but they hadn't like sealed the deal, like gone all the way to what, uh, what John was pointing to. John wasn't trying to become a great man. John was trying to become a great testifier, a great witness to, to the great man that was the savior of his own life, to the Lord Jesus. And so he has no trouble at all pointing himself away um, from, from uh, favor to, towards himself, uh, prominence towards himself, and pointing away towards Jesus. And then in verse 29, he explains why. In verse 29, he explains why. He says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Jewish, wedding, Je- Jewish weddings, we talked about this uh, during the, the, the wedding in Cana. Jewish weddings was a several-day affair, up to a week. And in the midst of this um, grand feast and, and grand celebration, the, the bride would be brought to the bridegroom's home where the, where the wedding would take place. And it was the friend of the bridegroom, um, known as the Shoshbin in, in Hebrew literature, who protected the bride and brought her to the groom's home for the wedding ceremony. So between the time of the betrothal and the time of the wedding, the shoshpin would be responsible for protecting the bride and making sure all things were ready on her end. And then he would be the one who would make sure that she was brought um, to, the, to the home and presented to the groom. He, he was kind of like our best man, Maybe kind of a combination of the father of the bride and the best man. He, he would be representing the, the groom and going to get her, and he'd be presenting her to the, to the groom for the wedding. The groom was the destination, and the best man's duty was fulfilled when the wedding took place, when it, when it happened. We made it with much rejoicing. Well, John likens, likens himself and his ministry to that of the Shoshpin and rejoices that his followers are being brought to Jesus. So he points out, he says, it's kind of like this. You've seen these weddings, he's telling these people, and it's kind of like that. I'm the Shoshpin, and I'm bringing the bride, you, all these followers, to Christ, to the groom. Don't you understand? Um, remember that John is the one who first rejoiced while he was in, still in his mother's womb, Luke 144. Um, when Elizabeth comes to, when Mary comes to Elizabeth, and then Elizabeth says to Mary, For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. That's John. So, so John, before he's born, is already leaping for joy with, uh, with regard to Jesus, the incarnation coming. And now he says his joy has been fulfilled, it's, it's almost as if from the moment of his conception, and his time in the womb, all the way till this moment now, where he's able to send everyone to go to Jesus. His joy is being fulfilled. That's what I was made for. This is what I was made for. And my joy is fulfilled. Well, that's a great story. That's a great illustration. You know, so many commentators that will just, they'll make that point. They'll make that, that's the illustration. As though, in, in, as John, John might have said, see, now how can I, how can I help people understand What's really going on? Oh, I know. It's kind of like this wedding ceremony, which is true. 
But there is so much more going on here. He's not just picking an illustration out of thin air at all. He is dragging all kinds of stories, all kinds of illusions, all kinds of illustrations that have been given to the Jews over the centuries by the prophets, talking about this wedding that is going to take place, this new wedding that is going to take place, talking about a marriage that was going to take place between God and his people. This is, this is what's going on. The scriptures are filled, filled with a picture of the relationship between God and his covenant people as a husband-wife relationship. And this is not disconnected from the, from the sentence that I wanted you to be thinking about. Imagine being able to enjoy what is most enjoyable with unbounded energy and passion forever. When you stand and you give those wedding vows to one another and you say, until death do we part... You know that what you have, what you're doing, you're making a commitment, well, forever in terms of for the rest of your life. And the commitment is to enjoy with great passion and delight forever. That's the vow and the commitment that you make. But it's only until death. There's another wedding celebration that you're a part of that truly is forever and ever. God and his people... God and his covenant people are described as husband and wife relationship. Listen to Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh, is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Your maker, God, is your husband. Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies, is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And also, um, Ezekiel has these passages that describe um, this uh, God coming and getting his bride in, in these wedding pictures, in this betrothal picture. He says in Ezekiel 16, 8, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says Yahweh says the Lord God. Israel's idolatry is often pictured actually as adultery, as covenantal idolatry. Turn with me to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 3. <clears throat> Jeremiah is being written at the time where um, Judah is, is being carried out or is going to be carried out into exile. They're going to lose everything. God is, in essence, divorcing Israel. God, in essence, is removing and separating himself from Israel. Listen to verses 6 through 8. The Lord also said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. That's where the idolatry of worshiping other gods and adultery, playing the harlot, are matched. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes of, of which, for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I'd put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went unplayed the harlot also. So Jeremiah is, is reflecting on Israel, the northern kingdom, and her harlotry. And the warning is being given to Judah, which also is going to come under the same kind of judgment. So 
this, this idea of covenantal idolatry, again, is this, has this picture of marriage, this marriage union between God and his people. And then Hosea speaks of a new marriage, the taking back of an adulterous wife, the hope of a restoration that's kind of like beyond, beyond imaginable in, in Hosea chapter 2. Remember, we have just been also with Jesus at a wedding. We were with Jesus at a wedding, John 2, verses 1 through 12. And the groom is responsible for the wine, and it turns out that Jesus is actually the one supplying the best wine. So keep that picture in your mind also. Remember that when, when Jesus, um, kind of quietly, nobody really notices that, that he turns the water into wine except his disciples and a few. We know that because then the wine is brought to the head of the party, and he drinks the wine, and he goes, and he says, to the bridegroom, he says, usually people wait and they, they serve the good wine first and then they bring out, after everybody's had plenty to drink, they bring out the cheaper stuff. But you have the good wine and he commends the groom because grooms were responsible to make sure there was wine for the wedding. But this groom hadn't been. He had fallen short. And Jesus, we find, is the one who actually supplies the wine. Who's the groom here? In, who's the groom? And that might help I was reflecting on this. That might help understand, again, this, this um, picture of these words that take place between Mary and, and Jesus. Remember, Mary says, um, uh, Mary says um, son, they're, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, mother, it's not yet my time. And then he goes ahead and does the quiet miracle worker. What, what does it mean it's not his time? Well, it's not his time to be the groom. It's not his time to openly be the groom. He's going to be the groom in a couple of years after his, after his resurrection. Now, so so that, that, may, that may help us understand that, that weird uh, set of words that go between um, Jesus and his mother there. Okay, so then, so then when, when there's no wine, that's a picture of a groom's failure. Or that's a picture of a failure with regard to the, um, to the love of a, a husband-wife relationship. Something's gone wrong. Well, um, in Isaiah 24, if, you, if you're still in Jeremiah, just turn back a little bit to Isaiah chapter 24. And look at verse 5. <clears throat> Isaiah 24, 5. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. So this is the impending judgment upon all the earth. Listen, verse 7, the new wine fails, the vine languages, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases, they shall not drink wine with a song." The wine is gone. So rebellious Judah is out of wine, and there is no rejoicing. But God returns to them, and the best wine appears in celebration. Just turn one chapter over to 25, verse 6. And so when God reestablishes, how is that pictured? This reestablishment of the relationship, covenant relationship with God and his new people. It's with wine. Chapter, six, or chapter 25, verse 6. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. 
the well-refined wines that Jesus brought into this marriage that had lost the wine, that had lost the celebration. The rejoicing had stopped. Jesus brings it back in, fulfilling this picture or bringing another picture to be fulfilled of, um, of what's going on with Israel. In Amos chapter 9, I'm going to read a, a quote here as well. This, this quote is quoted um, in Acts 15 when, the, when uh, the Jerusalem council comes together and they're debating about whether or not the Gentiles ought to be able to come into covenant with God as well and whether they can be brought into covenant with, as well without all the ceremonial trimming, trimmings. Okay, And so in Amos chapter 9, here's what Amos writes. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Those are the two verses that are quoted in Acts chapter 15. All the Gentiles are going to come in, um, James and Peter, not, those argue, and, and God had told us all of that. But listen to the next verses that follow. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who, whom, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And so we have, again, a new tabernacle that is being raised up, a tabernacle of David, and the wine flows again in celebration. And then, of course, we also have the picture of the bride in Revelation chapter 21. At the end of the Bible, another wedding is pictured. The, the fulfillment is brought forth to us, where the bride is the new Jerusalem, the church. We are that bride, the church who is brought in to the bridegroom, who is brought to the bridegroom, presented to the bridegroom. The church, in one sense, Paul will use this kind of language, he will act as the shoshbin. He will refer to himself as the one who is making sure that the bride is brought to the, uh, to the bridegroom. If you want to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what the faithful... Here's what faithful ministers and faithful churches are doing for their congregation and to generations. We can apply this to the apostle. We can apply this to pastors. We can apply this to fathers. We can apply this to families. We can apply this to generations. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, 2 Corinthians 11. And indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He's protecting and preparing her. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Oh, use those verses, fathers. Use those verses when you're talking to your kids about why they do not want to walk into the simplicity of, or walk away from the simplicity of Christ and instead get into the complexity and, and all the troubles that come from sin, from walking away from the Lord Jesus Christ and the simplicity that is ours with faith in Christ and grace that sustains us all the way to the end. That's what we're called to do, to be shoshmans, to be the ones who, are, who look to the congregation, to look to God's people and say, I, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy that I might present you pure and blameless before the Lord Jesus Christ, that I might bring you there. That's what Paul was referring to. He understood 
He understood what John the Baptist was talking about and what John was, was talking about in his gospel and lived that way as one who loved the church. Now, there's one other subtle point that I think is important to notice here if you turn back with me to John chapter 3 here at the end. Applying all these Old Testament images to Christ, you have to see, remember it says, your maker, your husband, or your maker is your husband. And all these pictures about this relationship between, about God and his people. Well, if Jesus is the husband, then what, this pas- what these passages are also pointing to and proving is that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. He's the husband that has been promised. He's Yahweh. Jesus is being declared here to be Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the God of all of Israel, the new Israel, Israel's husband and God our maker. And this is, of course, why John would testify, he must increase, but I must, I must de- decrease. He's not, he's not looking at uh, Jesus' ministry or his preaching ability or how they're doing the baptisms and saying, you know, those guys are a lot better than me. <laughs> you should go with them now. No, he's understanding his role and he's understanding who Jesus is. And his testimony is not just to Jesus who's better, better teacher, better example, but rather to Jesus who is Yahweh, to his God. Now, verses 31 through 36 is, again, I believe, where a commentary on this passage comes forth. We don't know where where to put the quotation marks. I think this is now John the Evangelist's commentary on the testimony of John the Baptist. Because Jesus has come from heaven, his heavenly testimony is above all. That's verse 31. No one is able to receive his testimony on their own. Verse 32, let's look at that again. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Jesus actually said the same thing in verse 11. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, what they're not saying is that what they're it says actually in the very next verse, 32, <clears throat> I'm sorry, 33, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Well, so what, what Jesus doesn't mean is that no one receives my testimony. He, he, means, he means no one receives my testimony in and of themselves. It's impossible. They won't receive my testimony because, as I mentioned before, it's only when the Spirit blows. It's only when you've been born again. It's only when God moves that you receive this testimony. Okay, so, but when the Spirit then works through Jesus and his testimony is received, this certifies that God is true, verses 33 and 34. And then there's this wonderful verse, 35. We love 316, for God so loved the world, but 335, the Father loves the Son. Not only does the Father love the Son, but the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. So it's true, the Father loved the world and sent His Son, but the Father loves the Son and gives the Son the world. And this is going to be unpacked also throughout the Gospel. This love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, that love is eternal life. The love the Father has for the Son, that the Son has for the Father, is eternal life, and it is the person and life-giving work of the Spirit Himself. 
It's not like the Spirit's been missed here in this, in this passage and in these, in these stories. Rather, the Spirit is that person, is the person who is the, the very person of the God, the very personal love of God the Father for His Son and the Son back. The outpouring of joy, celebration, love. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. This is what God does by His Spirit in us. The Father is well pleased with the Son. We see that at, John's, at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3 and also in the transfiguration in chapter 17 where God the Father declares His delight in the Son. I'm well pleased with my Son. Listen to Him, He says. The Father gives glory to the Son because He loved Him before the foundation of the world, John testifies, Jesus testifies in John 17. The Father loves the Son because Jesus lays down His life and takes it up again. In John 10, 17, the father loves the son and has given him all things into his hand right here at the end of this passage. The father loves the son. We'll be unpacking that quite a bit throughout the rest of this. But when the father loves the son and gives him all things, he is fulfilling the prophecy that was given by David in Psalm chapter 2. I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said to me, you are my son. So therefore, the father has said to me, the father has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations, everything. I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You are the answer to that declaration that God the father gave to his son. You are the answer to the declaration that God the father gave to his son. I'm giving you these people. They are going to be yours. You will purchase them with your blood and they will be with you invited, invited by our spirit and brought in by our spirit to be in that loving fellowship and relationship with us forever. All their sins forgiven. Everything set right. Everything set right. I hope you have a Thanksgiving feast to remember that and give thanks for that this coming Thursday. And then let that roll into the rest of your life. Do you realize that you are the gift of the Father to the Son. It doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> I'm a gift to the Son? Oof. But He has made sure that we have been made perfect and blameless before Him. We, the work of the God's Spirit in us. Verse 36 again. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What is this enjoyment of God that we are invited into? Well, let's consider the, the last half of the, of the verse first. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is your state if you don't believe in the Son. It's horrible. This is parallel to the second half of, of Jesus uh, speaking in verse 8, or, or, of, of John speaking of Jesus in, in 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. 35, we are told the wrath of God rests upon him, abides on him, abides in him. Failure to trust in Jesus Christ Failure to believe, failure to trust in Jesus Christ is not only unbelief. Failure to trust in Jesus Christ is disobedience. Failure to trust in Jesus Christ is another sin that Jesus has to die for. 
Failure to trust in Jesus Christ is as much disobedience as it is unbelief. Speaking of the wrath of God, Paul will write in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's not that they're unrighteous. It's not that um, because of their unrighteousness, the wrath of God is being revealed. It, rather, it is their, their unrighteousness, that, that this stumbling, tumbling into sin and all kinds of wickedness is the revelation of the wrath of God. They are abiding in the wrath of God. The wrath of God, John says, abides in them. And Paul says, why is this the case? He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is no excuse for your unbelief. There's no excuse for your unbelief. That's what Paul says. That's what, even, even, when, even when we are told that only by the work of the Spirit can we come to faith. Even so, we are told you are without excuse in your unbelief. And Paul says, Paul says something here that I can't prove in you, but you know. And that is this. You know that. You know that the wrath of God abides in you. You know that God exists, and you know his condemnation is upon you. That's what the scriptures say. And we all go around denying it. We all go around covering our eyes. We're like little kids hiding from God like this. You can't see me, can you, God? can't see me. It doesn't work. You cannot run away from God, and you cannot run away from his wrath. His wrath abides on us, on all of us. Unless there's a turning of faith in the work of the Spirit. They're without excuse, Paul says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. And glorify God, and they refused to give thanks. And how often do you refuse to give thanks or refuse to glorify God? Don't step into that unbelief but became futile instead in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But now the first half. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Not will one day have everlasting life. Has everlasting life. Hear the word. Believe it. And you receive that perfect love, that perfect love, which is eternal life in the Spirit. Do not, do not trivialize eternal life. It is so much more than simply living forever in the by and by once you die. It is life that is full, overflowing, wine on the lees, eternal intimacy and bliss. Imagine being able to enjoy what is most enjoyable with unbounded energy and passion forever. Who wants that? That is what the Father is eternally enjoying with His Son. And that is what He has invited us to enjoy with Him. Have a great Thanksgiving. Let's pray together. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Grant rejoicing here in our midst by your Holy Spirit, 
like a well-orchestrated wedding celebration that goes on and on and on, spilling over and through our lives with love, joy, peace, patience, and all the fruit of the Spirit, pressed out like sweet wine. Let us enjoy your delight in your Son and the inheritance we are in Him, and let that bless the way we live before a world lost in wrath and darkness spill out and over through our rejoicing and trust. In Jesus' name, amen.